Hey everybody, this is Pete in almost real time once again. It's Sunday evening, just a few hours before the next episode goes up. And I just wanted to thank everybody who's been listening. Thank those of you who have been writing reviews on iTunes. Those really help. And thank those of you who've gone to PeteBrownSays.com backslash submit and shared some stories of your own. Episode 2 had more downloads and listens than Episode 1 did. And I think that's great as long as we keep building a little bit each time. We're going in the right direction. You know, early, earlier this afternoon, I was running a carpet cleaner. We rented a carpet cleaner to clean the carpets in the house. And uh, I had my slippers on while I was doing it. And so they were getting wet. And then I stepped on the hardwood floor and I went down hard and fast. I feel like I need to enter some sort of suburban dad concussion protocol. But nonetheless, I'm excited to share this episode with you. About a year and a half ago when I sat down and started writing these stories, this was the first one I wrote, so it holds a special place in my heart. The intro to it is a story in and of itself, so it's a little longer than usual. But everything, as they say, comes together in the end. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Let's get to the show. Hey folks, just a quick note before today's show. If you're enjoying this podcast, could you take a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? It really helps. Or just tell a friend or two about us. All right, let's get to the show. Thanks, and as always, good times. This is episode three, Two Lies and a Truth. Hey everybody, welcome. I'm Pete Brown and this is Pete Brown Says, my creative nonfiction audio experiment. I do the grocery shopping for my family. I go to a store called Meyer. I've been going there for years. I'm there at least once a week, but most weeks two or three times. In fact, one of the last things I do before I leave the office every day is I text my family that I'm heading home and is there anything I need to pick up. I know where everything is in that store. At the front of the Meyer store, and I believe at all Meyer stores, is a fiberglass pony sitting on a mechanical base. And the pony's name is Sandy. And there's a coin box. And little kids climb up on the pony, and you put some money in the coin box. And then it kind of goes up and around for about a minute or so, sort of simulating a, a pony running. I believe these are actually called kitty rides. You know what I'm talking about. The neat thing about Sandy is it only costs a penny to ride. In fact, it's been a penny for 50 years in all the Meyer stores. When my kids were little, they rode Sandy every time. And if you don't have a penny, you usually don't have to worry because people just leave extra pennies sort of sitting on top of the coin box. And every every time I go there when I'm checking out, I see little kids run up to the Sandy and their parents put in a penny and they wait for about 30 seconds or a minute till the ride's over. And then they head out to the parking lot. And it's, it's a good thing. It's something I really look forward to seeing when I go there. For how lousy the parents' day might have been or whatever's going on in those kids' lives, they know that they get a ride Sandy and it only costs a penny. But seeing this every time I'm there triggers more memories for me. In the suburb I grew up in, our Meyer was actually called Kmart. And Kmart was the store where you went when you needed to buy windshield wipers and underpants and two yards of polyester fabric. Our Kmart had a cafeteria in there and you'd be shopping and they would announce... 
Attention Kmart shoppers, today's blue light special in the cafeteria is a turkey sandwich with Bev for $1.59. And then my dad would always lean over to me and say, Bev's the cook. You thought this was a great joke. Out in front of the Kmart where I grew up were a couple of kiddie rides. There was like a mini merry-go-round, I think there was a pony, and then there was a race car. It's like an open-wheeled midget racer, but to me it, it looked like something that, you know, was winning the Grand Prix of Monaco in the 30s. So when I'd be waiting in line to check out with my parents, I'd always ask, hey, can I go play in the race car? And they'd say, sure. They could see it and keep an eye on me while they took care of the transaction. Now this race car cost a quarter, and it's not like my parents ever gave me a quarter to run it. And as I was preparing this episode, I was wondering about that. Like, it wasn't that they didn't have a quarter. It's just that my parents weren't the parents that were going to give their kids a quarter to ride a kiddie ride. I don't know how else to say it. But I didn't care. Because once I got in that race car, the steering wheel turned, and I would just be like, it really lit up my imagination. So I remember being in that race car one time. At most, I was maybe seven years old. And an old man came walking by as he had checked out. He had a small aqua blue plastic Kmart bag with whatever he had bought in it. He was a taller man, very thin-framed, had a long face and a bit of a widow peak. And I remember on his left hand, he had a big black watch. And I remember it because as he was walking by, he slowed down and he reached into his pocket and he took out a quarter and he plunked it in the coin box and headed off. And the race car just fired to life. And all it really did was go and up and down. But I, I was ecstatic, right? Because it was it was just something I'd never done before. And this stranger had just plopped a quarter in and walked off. I mean, I remember... I I wasn't like a super expressive child, but I was trying to make sure I smiled really bigly so that if he looked back, he could see how much I appreciated what he had done. And I think it's crazy because I think of that man every week, two to three times, every time I met Meyer. And this was 40 years ago. I think it's fair to say this memory haunts me. And I don't mean haunting in a negative way or like by a ghost. The fourth definition of haunting is to be persistent in one's mind. And this memory certainly is. And I'd love to end this story here on a high note, but I can't because this memory gives way to my next Kmart memory. And it's not a good one. And it's not a good one because it involves a lie that I told that did not turn out well. It was summertime. Again, I'm going to say I was seven or maybe eight years old at most, hanging around outside my house. And I remember my dad saying, hey, I have to go to Kmart. Do you want to go? And I said, sure. Of course I did, because I knew I could go get in that car. I loved it. And he said, okay, go find your sister and see if she wants to come. And so I remember I hopped on my bike and I rode to the places in the neighborhood where my sister, I thought my sister might be. She wasn't at the Schlummers. She wasn't at the Butterfields. And I rode back to my house and said to my dad, she doesn't want to come. So he said, all right, and we headed over to Kmart. And as we were pulling into the parking lot at Kmart, he goes, oh, look, there's your mother's car. And pulling out of a spot was my mom's station wagon. So my dad pulled in next door and rolled down the window, and she was sitting in the car, and next to her was my sister. And I remember my dad's face as he looked over into my mom's car and then looked back at me. And then he said, you told me your sister didn't want to come. And I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. And he said, you lied to me. And then we had to go into Kmart and shop for things. And it was one of those experiences where, you know, he was walking fast. Like, he didn't want to bother walking at a slower pace. I had to keep up with him. And I knew enough not to talk to him. And I certainly knew enough not to ask if I could go sit in the red race car. At one point, I remember saying, well... I saw her friend Christine and she said there's no way she would want to go to Kmart. And then as I was saying this thinking, well, that does not sound credible. That's just making things worse. And my dad got down on my level and said, 
just stop talking. So I did. And where this memory ends for me is the look on my dad's face. Because he, he was really angry that I had told this lie. And he was also disappointed that I had told this lie. And if you mix anger and disappointment to a seven or eight year old, that look can read as disgust. Because I remember that's what I felt, that my dad was disgusted with me for what I had done. And this too is something I remember every week when I go to Meyer to pick up groceries or buy windshield wipers. Sandy the horse, Kmart, red race car, skinny old man, the sound of the quarter plunking into the coin box, my little boy's voice saying, she doesn't want to come, the sight of my mom's car in the parking lot, my dad's face. And I know a lot of you might be thinking, you know, you were seven, that's not great what you did, but you know, cut yourself some slack. You maybe let that one go or forgive yourself. I would if I could. There's probably something appealing to me about this memory, too, because there are two other grocery stores within the same mile as the Meyer is, but I always go back to the Meyer because probably in some small way, we all enjoy being haunted by something. Now, I'm sure that wasn't the first lie I ever told, but it is certainly one of the earliest lies that I remember. We get the magazine National Geographic at our house, and, and just last month the cover story was called Why We Lie. And it had some really interesting things to say about the science behind why people lie. Everybody lies at some time or another, or is deceitful. And in fact, we start as young as two years old. A lot of clinical psychologists look at this as sort of a stage in development of a child, the ability to tell a lie or deceive. They have an interesting chart in here where they show how often people lie by age group. And I suppose, unsurprisingly, you tell the most lies between ages 13 and 17. This chart suggests that 59% of kids that age lie one to five times a day, and another 15% lie more than five times a day. I was probably in that 15%, to be honest, when I was a teenager. I lied all the time. I had a bit of a wild streak. I had no real regard for rules. Do you have homework? Is your homework done? Where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing? It was just lie after lie after lie, because the real answers would have gotten me in trouble. You lie less and less as you get older, and I've really worked hard to make it a point in my adult life to be as honest as I can at all times, certainly sometimes to the detriment of social norm. The other infographic in there that I thought was really interesting was the reasons why people lie, the broad categories. For example, 16% lie for economic advantage. Actually harkens back to lying as an evolutionary development, something that helped people gain power. 14% avoidance to escape or evade people. Yeah, we've all done that, right? 22% to cover up a mistake or a misdeed, a personal transgression. That's really hard, right? When you make a mistake, 5% of lies are to make people laugh. 2% are to uphold social roles or avoid rudeness. That seems low to me. 2% are pathological, people who just ignore or disregard reality. This long pause is where I'm thinking about making a political joke, and I'm going to take a pass on it. What really, really fascinates me about this graph, though, is 7% unknown. Motives are unclear, even to ourselves. 7% of the time we lie, we don't even know why we're doing it. You ever heard something coming out of your mouth and you're like, what the hell am I saying? Over on the website, PeteBrownSays.com backslash submit, I put prompts where listeners can record themselves responding to a specific prompt. And, and so a few months back, I had asked people to tell me about 
the strangest lie they've heard themselves telling, right? some sort of corker that just came out of their mouths. I posted a call for this on Craigslist in some various cities and got a few responses back. I'm going to play a couple of them now. Okay, so I had this one time that was early in college, and I just met this girl, and she was big into basketball, and she kept talking about her ex-boyfriend and how he played basketball, and we had not talked about much, and she was just going on and on about her ex-boyfriend and how he played basketball, and then, of course, I said, oh, yeah, I played on the basketball team. At some point in the relationship, we were studying together, and she goes, oh, yeah, I talked to my ex-boyfriend, and uh, she said, yeah, he uh, went through the program, and you weren't in it. And I'm like, huh, that's weird. I, that's uh, that's interesting. Must have gotten the years mixed up or something. One guy left nine messages that were not really related to the prompt at all. I think he was using the page more as a confessional than to submit a story, but that's great. He had some funny things to say. I always wanted to be hypnotized. And when I was in college, the university brought in this hypnotist, bullshit artist guy that got up on stage and there were a couple hundred of us and he attempted to hypnotize the crowd, and I so wanted to be hypnotized, but it just doesn't work. Not for me. But I raised my hand anyway when he said, you know, who's hypnotized? When my mom got home, she saw that note, and she was so hurt, and she immediately blamed it on my brother Dave, because Dave was always And Dave, Dave cried and said it wasn't him, it wasn't him, and she wouldn't believe him because Dave is an And I just stood by, and I let that lie ride. And he took the heat for it. Eventually, I got up on stage and he convinced me I was Bon Jovi. So I played along. Because why not? So for like five minutes up on stage, I tried to assume the persona of John Bon Jovi and even signed autographs and uh, told people I was hypnotized. And So I want to thank everybody who submitted those. And remember, anytime to go to PeteBrownSays.com backslash submit, and there will be a prompt there. It gets changed out about once a month based on what new episodes I'm working on or thinking about. All of that was a very long introduction to get me into the story that I wanted to share with you today. Two lies and a truth. And it's about two lies that I had forgotten I told, but was recently reminded of them. And then my best attempt at the truth of how I feel about them now. It's coming up next. Let's give it a listen. This is Two Lies and a Truth. I've moved my family twice now in the past 18 months, all within a few miles of each other. There was a well-intentioned but far too early effort to downsize our family from a four-bedroom, two-story McHouse to a 50s ranch-style kit house, followed, about 12 months later, by an admission of defeat, an unconditional surrender to the mores of modern suburban living, and off we went on another round of house hunting. To downsize into the ranch, we had sold or gave away what we could, took what fit into the new place, and put the rest into a storage unit we were determined to get out of within a few months. We ended up renting a second storage unit when we put the ranch on the market, and we currently have both units as I rate this, and are living more or less out of boxes in the latest home, which is a very long way of saying that the best laid plans often go astray, and it says nothing about baseball which, believe it or not, is what I want to talk about today. In fact, it is a very specific baseball I want to talk about. 
It is one that I found recently while searching through the plastic containers in storage unit number two for my son's social security card. The kid's just 16 now and dying to get his driver's permit. I didn't find his card, but I did find this baseball. It's older and worn. It has the heft of a ball that was waterlogged once and dried back out. And after that, a baseball just doesn't feel quite the same. If you look closely on the surface of this ball, you'll see faint remnants of faded black marker, a tween's handwriting, big letters, game ball, Orioles 8, Yankees 5. This is my one and only game ball from eight years that I played Little League. And it is a lie. Before I dig into this lie, I should say that not every coach I had across eight years of Little League gave out game balls for good performances. Some of the coaches did, some of the coaches didn't do it. My two neighborhood friends, Sean and Bunky, played for a number of coaches that did, in fact, give out game balls, and they were, in fact, very good players. Each of them had a shelf with six or seven or more game balls lined up on it. Even today, across the years, I can see them so clearly in my mind. Hawks 12, Lakers 10, Bulls 9, Suns 7. I was not a good player. Until very recently, had you asked me, I'd say of my game, good glove, can't hit a curveball. But even that isn't entirely true. I couldn't hit a curveball, or a fastball, or a slider, or pretty much any pitch that came my way. The issue was so pronounced the year that I played for the Yankees that I remember being patently unwilling to swing the bat. Most games, I was just out there doing my best to earn a walk. And yes, I occasionally leaned into a pitch and took one for the team as they say. This latter strategy of getting hit by pitches wasn't terribly difficult that year, when I was 12 years old, because this is the year where boys are just starting to try to throw curveballs, but very few of them actually break across the plate. So if you keep your hip up in the box, it was pretty easy to get hit and take your base. I want to say I got hit by a pitch three or four times that season, one of which, a bit frighteningly, was in my face. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot of hit by pitches, but it was just enough that the other boys on the team would joke with me about it in a more or less friendly way. But what I cannot explain actually is what happened years later when I was in college in my 20s drinking beer with new friends from new places, some of whom were indeed very good ball players who had played for the big Catholic schools from the southwestern corner of the state and who liked to talk about it and perhaps to keep up with their stories or just to not feel left out, I heard myself suddenly offer up this gem. I hold the record for most hit by pitch in my little league. I don't have to tell you that this isn't true. It could be true. We don't know. Little League for me was in the early 1980s, and back then parents didn't keep records for their kids. But once you drop a detail like this into a crowded dorm room of half-gassed 20-year-olds, well, you better dig in. How many times did you get hit by a pitch? Someone asked. I thought for a moment and then said, 38. 38 sounded like a good number to me. It was impressive, but not ostentatious. But then someone asked a follow-up question. Well, how many games were in your season? I think the truthful answer to that is on the order of 16 or 18 games, which made me feel pretty awful about saying I got hit by 38 pitches in such a short span. So, in response... I upped it to 30 games and felt the thin ice under this lie starting to crack, as I did. You got hit by 38 pitches in 30 games, someone asked incredulously. I realized that the bigger lie here, 38 hit by pitches, was simply drowning out the inconvenient fact that playing 30 games in Little League 
would take more than an entire summer. Well, I said, some games I was up four times and got hit by four pitches. Batting line zero for zero, but my on-base percentage was a thousand. I hoped this detail and these statistics would sell this lie. And I also hoped that something else would happen to get me out of it. Which, in short order, in our room of beer-fuzzy detention spans, something did. I don't remember exactly what happened to shift the conversation elsewhere, but I gotta believe what got me off the hook was a fart or a belch or someone getting out a beer bong or lighting a cigarette. I realize now that it was a full 25 years ago that I told this lie, and 35 years since that year that I played on the Yankees, not swinging at pitches, but also not getting out of the way either. It was as if unable to succeed at the game on its terms and unable to simply accept my failure to do it well, I decided to carve out my own narrative in that batter's box, one hot, sticky pitch at a time. Which brings me back to the game ball, which I'm holding in my hand now. I remember my coach, Mr. B, pack up the olive green equipment bag after our final game of the summer. I remember him chasing after the balls that were rolling around in the fine dust of the dugout. He picked up this particular ball and paused for a second, looking at it, because something about this ball just feels off, after all. And then, instead of putting it back in the bag, he looked up to where I was sitting, likely untying my cleats after the game, and he tossed it my way without saying a word. And I remember riding my bike home with it in my glove, thinking back through our season, 16 or 18 games after all, for the one game that I felt was my best, an 8-5 to loss to the Orioles, which stood out for me because our usual second baseman was on vacation with his family, so I got moved to the infield, where I had two tagouts and handled two grounders, with no errors. That's not a stellar line, by any measure, but for me, it was certainly enough to grant myself a bogus game ball that I could put on my shelf, that would find its way into a box, and from that box eventually a plastic container, only to be found again by my future self some 35 years later. I honestly don't know what these two lies mean in the grander scheme of whom I've become as a person, but the one truth in this story is that both of these lies still bother me. Not bothered that I never earned a game ball or was afraid to swing the bat, but just bothered by that awful, quiet sense that for a large portion of my childhood, I simply wasn't keeping up with everyone else. And I think this, too, is why 20-year-old me thought it would be perfectly reasonable to claim being hit by 38 pitches in a 30-game Little League season. That sense of falling behind is an awful, persistent presence. It's like a ringing in the ears that won't go away. It's a sinking feeling, watching your peers pull ahead. And it's a feeling that I think will haunt all of us at one time or another. And we each may create our own narratives to deal with it. In my case, two lies and one truth spread across 35 years, three houses, two storage units, and an old baseball in my hand that still smells ever so faintly of dirt.
Eight Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. You can read an essay version of today's main story at PeteBrownSays.com. Finally, you can follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com backslash PeteBrownSays, on Instagram and Twitter at PeteBrownSays, and also over on Medium at Medium.com slash PeteBrownSays. Music in this show comes from a variety of sources. The opening and interstitial music is by Brian Hake. Additional interstitials are by Kevin Davison. And the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by Brian Hake and Kevin Davison, as performed by their now-defunct band, Delicious. Additional background tracks and sound effects come from the websites audionautics.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, and freesound.org, and are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes on PeteBrownSays.com for complete attributions. Special thanks to Dania Hake for her performance as Kmart Blue Light Special Lady. Super convincing. And special thanks to Matt Longley, who recorded some Little League Baseball ambient noise for this episode. The next episode drops on Monday, October 30th. There's a Halloween connection in there for sure. Until then, good times, everyone. Hey, Pete, are those chocolate beers in my house? Because if they are, I'm going to kick your ass.